Welcome to Coached Up, the official podcast of Coaches Versus Cancer. Thank you for joining us. I'm DJ Allen, and it's game time. Welcome. We got an interesting conversation for you today. As you know, we have future Hall of Fame coaches. We have some of the top minds in college basketball, top young minds. We've had Craig Robinson, the recent newly appointed executive director of the National Association of Basketball Coaches. And today we have with us the senior VP of basketball for the NCAA, Dan Gavitt. Some have called him the czar of college basketball, all the different things. But Dan's here. And Dan, quick question. So when you meet someone new at a social gathering who's not too familiar with the athletics world, how do you describe what you do for a living? It's great to be with you, DJ. Uh, it's hard to sum up sometimes uh, for those that don't aren't as familiar with our game and, and with the NCA. Um, but I, I think I start with March Madness in that, you know, most people know what March Madness is and, and love it, uh, passionate about it. And I'll start, you know, by uh, saying that I oversee March Madness um, with my team. Uh, my job is a lot more than just that, but uh, that gets people's attention, I think. And and gets their interest level up. And then, you know, I go on to describe my other responsibilities at the NCAA. I oversee the men's and women's championships at all three divisions, divisions one, two, and three, the NIT championship. And then also involved with almost anything having to do with the game of basketball, with our legislation and rulemaking around the game, with uh, playing rules and officiating. Um, so almost anything that touches basketball, men's or women's in any way, um, I'm involved with or oversee directly, but it's that connection with March Madness, I think, that people appreciate the most, probably. I know we have a lot of coaches who listen. Unfortunately, we will not be taking calls for, on this <laughs> podcast for, uh, for Dan and the officiating side of things. But Dan, you talked about March Madness, and obviously as fans and as media, we love to talk about, quote unquote, March Madness. When does the madness really start for you and your team? Yeah, for us, it's year-round madness, really. Uh, you know, it really is an event that we plan for 12 months a year. Um, the planning probably begins in earnest in June. We have uh, monthly meetings at the Final Four site and with our partners uh, at the, that year's Final Four, or the next year's Final Four, actually, uh, that start monthly in June and, and go right through February. Um, and then, of course, in a normal year, we have 13 other sites that host tournament games uh, from the first four through the regionals. So we're in constant contact with them, do an orientation session with them in person in July and, um, and really do work on the tournament all year round. And, and even uh, future tournaments years in advance, you know, we are awarded out for final fours right now through 2026. So there's some level of planning for future final fours that takes place years before the event. Um, and that's kind of, you know, what our, what our rhythm is. Um, uh, but it, it is a year round effort. You mentioned normal year, obviously things are different. How different is putting together the 2021 tournament versus a typical year for you? Extremely, I would say, you know, um, so there are some common denominators. Uh, first of all, uh, you know, we were scheduled to have the final four in Indianapolis anyways, in 2021. So a lot of the planning for that weekend had already happened, um, you know, years in advance, like I said, and certainly since uh, last spring, but then adding the other, uh, what, 64 games and, and, and every round of the tournament to that planning um, 
has has resulted in in a lot of additional work. You know, the, the tournament planning process is is pretty well laid out um, when we do it in a normal year. But when you have to add all the medical protocols and safety measures. Uh, due to COVID-19 and doing it all in one geographic area in fewer venues, um, having to figure in practice times and testing times and how teams will stay and meet and move around. Um, it, it's, it has definitely been a challenge. It's been a, you know, a, a kind of a, a professionally uh, fulfilling challenge for our staff um, to really be thinking outside of the box and doing this on the fly. But it's uh, it, it it's it's exhausting, like it is for most people in our business right now. You know, we get to the end of every week, hopefully having accomplished a lot and and need it, you know, a day or so to, to recharge. Um, but uh, we're making very good progress. Really proud of the staff; they're doing an exceptional job. And of course, we've been supported by the membership too, by the committee, you know, by by the institutions, certainly locally here, by uh, with great host institutions and conferences and the venues we'll be at. So. Uh, we feel good about the progress we're making. In so many ways, college basketball really showed a lot of us in this world that, wow, this is real. Because last year when the conference tournaments and obviously the NCAA tournament was canceled, that's when we said, wow. Um, but you talked about how this has been an opportunity for your team to grow. How, how has the team adjusted? How has your team grown during this time of change? Well, you know, communicating, over-communicating, uh, much of it virtually uh, up until about December. We did start meeting in person again in December, um, just out of necessity, and, and are, you know, meeting uh, in person most days uh, of the week now. Um, so, you know, adjusting like everyone in the world has to that kind of virtual communication has certainly been part of it. Um, but, you know, really thinking about having each other's back, and while Everybody has a role to play, just like a team. Uh, because we're in kind of uncharted waters, um, you know, when when you think of someone else's role and what they're trying to figure out in this new planning process, having each other's back and, and offering thoughts uh, whenever they're in our heads, so that we have a really thorough approach to this uh, planning process, and and then really, you know, thinking outside of the box a little bit in terms of problem solving. Uh, what is an atypical uh, tournament. Um, much like I said earlier, much of what we do on an annual basis is 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 repetitive, is rote. It's you know it's been developed uh, and refined over time. Our manuals, our our practices and, and policies, um, but we have to be thinking differently now in order to accomplish some of you know everything that we need to in a safe and responsible way. So it's been stretching. Uh, I think uh, intellectually in that way that uh, everybody's had to be a little more creative. And um, and certainly, like I said, have have uh, our, you know each other's backs as well. You're listening to Coached Up, the official podcast of Coaches versus Cancer. Our guest is Dan Gavitt, the NCAA Senior VP of Basketball. And Dan, like many of us, you're a coach at heart. You've been around this game forever. We know you as the administrator and the leader that you are today of college basketball. But early in your career, you were an assistant coach at Providence, ran basketball camps. How much is leading a team on the court the same as leading the team off the court? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I, I'm very fortunate in my career to have had so many great opportunities and mentors. And certainly all the things I learned as an assistant coach working for Rick Barnes at Providence College, 
<clears throat> and the fellow assistant coaches that I work with um, had helped me an, an awful lot in my career and, and still uh, is a good foundation for what I do now because, you know, it really is about planning. It's about details. It's about communication um, and, and all the things that I did in a kind of a micro way, you know, with, with the Providence College basketball camps when Larry Scheidt and I used to run those uh, back in the day are some of the same, you know, transferable skills that I use today in a much larger way, obviously, with a big staff and a, and a you know, massive tournament that gets the country's attention in, in March. And so, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of similarity. And, and you know, for I, I think my first year, DJ, in this job, I was uh, struck by the enormity of the final four from a planning process, even though I'd been to final fours, you know, over 20 by the time I'd probably taken this job. When I was on the floor at the final four, my first year in 2013, I was, I, I, it, it just hit me that if everybody on our team wasn't doing their job and doing it well and playing the role that they were, you know, given to play, it couldn't work. I mean, I, I didn't have a good grasp, even myself, of what everybody was doing, but I was confident that everybody was doing and playing their role effectively. And that meant that this massive undertaking with all the complexity of it could be successful. And if any of those roles being, you know, needing to be played weren't successful, that the whole thing could be compromised. And so, you know, I think really very much like an effective and successful and winning team. Um, it's role playing. It's accepting your role, and then just doing it, like like Coach Belichick says with the Patriots, just do your job. And if you all do your job effectively, then the team can definitely be successful. Five guys on the court. Does everyone know his role? And as you said, do they embrace it? Are they engaged in doing it? Can't imagine that Final Four team, thousands of people. But does he or she know their role, and do they embrace it? It's all coaching. Now you bring up the final four and you bring up how big that was the first time. And you, 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 you'd been there and, and been going there a long time, but when you have a job that's in the spotlight, it's easy to be a target at times. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> what advice do you have for those who face criticism sometimes maybe for the first time in their careers? I think it's an excellent question and probably and I've experienced it at different levels during my career, but probably never more so than at the NCAA, um, because, you know, for better or worse, um, you know, some media and fans, you know, think about the NCAA and just think about it in, in a negative light or in a, you know, kind of confrontational way um, because of some of the membership rules and policies that we have in place. And so, you know, we're an easy target for some of that criticism to come um, at us and, and me. And so I have, you know, had to kind of learn how to deal with that a little bit more the last eight years I've been at the NCA than maybe in some uh, ways before. Then <clears throat> a couple of things I think are fairly self-evident. One is don't pay too much attention to social media. You know, if you use it at all, I mean, you really have to, I think, be mindful um, you know, not to let that dark coal, you know, engulf you. Um, and I do, you know, I, I follow things on social media and certainly I'm, I want to be mindful of what fans and media and others are thinking um, because, 
you know, you have to listen too. You have to be a good listener for sure. Um, but I think the other thing is, you know, just be true to what you know is right. You know, it's, you know, I go back to like Ted, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, the, the, uh, you know, whoever's in the arena is really the only one that knows what's going on in the arena. So you want to be mindful and, and listen to others, but, um, you know, be true to your craft, be very studious and, um, in what you do and, and focus on that. And, you know, you can only control the things you can control. And if you pay too much attention to criticism or noise that happens outside of what's in your control, then it's bound to distract you. And, and that's when it really does become problematic. So, um, you know, really just staying focused on the tasks at hand, trusting in your teammates and your leadership. Um, and, and I think if you do that, then it's less likely you will become distracted and, and influenced by any negativity you might be reading or hearing about. Dan, I really appreciate that you bring that up. We talk about that a lot in this industry about what the players have to deal with. These young student athletes or young pros and the noise with social media. But we don't talk about it a lot just because we're not playing and we might be a little bit older. It still impacts us, that negativity, that criticism. And a lot of coaches, especially first time coaches, deal with that for the first time. And a lot of leaders in business. Listen, when you're in a position of authority, you're going to get criticized. It's just going to happen. It's human nature. Um, so I really appreciate that you bring that up. And, and it is that balance, like you said, of staying informed. But at the same time, we have to be able to mute the noise to be able to focus on what we do the best. I totally agree. You know, <clears throat> young people ask me all the time, you know, about what I've learned in my career. And I've been very fortunate. I always start with that because I've had uh, great opportunities and great mentors along the way, going from an assistant coach to uh, an athletic director, a conference administrator, and now working at the NCA. But, you know, with the acknowledgement that I have been fortunate, I, I, I share that I think part of my success, whatever that may be, is that whenever, whatever job I was in at whatever level, I poured all of my uh, focus and energy and attention into that job. I didn't spend much time at all, if ever, about looking around for the next job. Um, I, I had too much respect for the job that I had uh, that I was fortunate enough to have at that time and wanted to excel at it and, and, and do the best I could for wherever I was working for. And I think largely I was fortunate with the next opportunities that came along because they found me instead of me found finding them. And, and because I focused on my job and developing my skill set and experience, I was prepared to be successful in the next opportunity that I got. So that, that's another piece of advice, I think, especially to younger uh, coaches or administrators is, you know, kind of bloom where you're planted and, and spend that energy to be successful um, with the people that you're working with and for. And opportunity, more often than not, you know, to advance will follow if you really do focus in that way. Such great advice, right? Focus on performance over promotion. <clears throat> so easy to get caught up in what's next, what's next. And particularly in an in industry like college athletics or athletic, athletics in general, where we like to judge people by the logos they're wearing, right? Well, that's a, that's a, a power five. You're not at a power five, you're mid-major. Well, if you're not mid-major, are you D2? Are you, well, let's talk about that with you in your career. You talked about being an AD. You were an AD at, at Division II Bryant and had success there. And I had a mentor, Jim Livengood, a longtime 
Division One AD at Washington State and, and Arizona and UNLV. And I remember him telling me one time, DJ, the big time is where you are. The big time is where you are. You mentioned earlier, not only have you worked at different places, you put together the D3 championships, the D2 championships every single year. Then what have you learned about working with all levels of college athletics? Well, uh, you know, I was fortunate to be the athletic director of Bryant College back uh, many years ago at the time of Division II school. Now it's Bryant University, a Division I school. And I absolutely loved my time there. Um, I, I, I spent six years there and worked for a great president and with fantastic coaches and student athletes. <clears throat> and with great support and, and a great staff, we were able to take the programs there from being very kind of uh, average at best to, to excelling and, and having teams regularly in NCAA tournaments. And, and our men's basketball team uh, went all the way to the championship game in 2005, uh, led by Max Good, our head coach, and played in the national championship game against Virginia Union um, in Grand Forks, North Dakota. And I can tell you that the excitement and thrill I got from that experience and others at Bryant easily rivaled uh, the excitement that I had when I was an assistant coach at Providence and we played for and won the Big East tournament and played in three different NCAA tournaments. You know, I think it depends on what your motivation is. You know, my motivation has always been, you know, kind of mentoring coaches, supporting student athletes and, and their advancement and, and being in the fight. And I realized when I was at Bryant, it didn't matter if you were at the Big East conference and, uh, you know, the highest level of Division One men's basketball or the Division Two level, if you poured all your effort and soul into something, it's the same feeling of success and fulfillment. Um, you know, to Jim's excellent point, um, you know, it really is about where you are if, if you're there for the right reasons and you're putting all your energy into that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, and, and, you know, look, the experience I had as a Division Two athletic director has, has very much benefited me in my current job too, because, you know, all the things I learned in, in administration um, are the same at the high, highest level of division one, maybe a few more zeros, you know, maybe a, a larger program with a little more attention on it, but same skill set, same experiences in order to be successful. So I, I, I treasure the time I had at Bryant when I left Bryant for the big East conference as an administrator there, it was very emotional to leave because I didn't want to leave. I, I, I love my time there. And, uh, you know, so yeah, it's, um, it really is about where you are and, and, and it can be as fulfilling where you are as anywhere, as long as you're there for the right motivation and reasons. You have that great perspective and it's that perspective that I'm sure brings value to, to you and your position. And I know we get a chance to work with so many coaches from, top level division one, work with pros all the way down to middle school. And, it, and it's interesting working with, with those who coach high school or maybe those at lower level of college. Sometimes the coaches or the administrators will almost apologize, you know, for, for, for things and say, well, I know we just do it at this level. And I, I love getting an opportunity to look at them. And I share with them the story that Jim taught me, the big time is where you are. Because we've had that opportunity to be on the bus rides to the Final Four and pregame meals and with, with top teams. But I tell you what, that big road win in high school is just as special as that moment as that big road win at the Division One level. It's just, it's the big time is where you are. No question. If you're a competitor, that is absolutely 100% true. 
we've always been fascinated working with those who are children of successful professionals. And this is throughout all industries. And obviously, you know, your, your dad, Dave, was so instrumental helping to start the Big East. And of course, that was the college basketball beast that it was and had a great career in the industry. How did that benefit you? But also, what were some of the unique challenges of you going into the same industry as your dad? Well, first and foremost, he was an incredible father uh, to my brother and I and, and, uh, and a loving dad. And, and uh, you know, we benefited from that more than anything. Um, but yeah, I certainly was fortunate um, to learn some things from him by observing him and being part of conversations um, you know, growing up. And then even more so when I was at, at the, as an assistant at Providence College or at Bryant College as the athletic director, having, you know, conversations with him as a, as a, as a mentor and as, and as a confidant um, with things that I was trying to accomplish or dealing with. Uh, so very much benefited from his wisdom in that way, as well as the people that I met through him, um, you know, his peers and, and those that were in my peer group. Um, I, I certainly, my network, you know, was probably deeper because of uh, my family relationship with him and the you know, multitude of friends and colleagues that he had throughout our business. And some of that still exists today for sure. Um, but, you know, I, I think, as much as anything, um, you know, I realized over, over time that you have to be your own person as well. I mean, my dad has some very unique, uh, you know, skills and talents and, um, and he was much more of a kind of visionary and entrepreneur in some ways, um, by starting the big East conference, for example, and, you know, bringing the dream team to reality and with USA basketball and the NBA, um, and, and, and there are, you know, very few people that have the kind of skill set that he had and, and, the, and the relationships uh, through coaching and administration and all that, that he had. And, and so I don't try to model myself after that because I think my skill set and, and my personality is slightly different. Um, and I think that that's a big learning and realization for, uh, you know, a family member that may have someone, you know, you, you need to ultimately be yourself and, and, and be true to that. Um, you know, if I tried to be my dad exclusively, I don't know that I'd be successful or fulfilled because we are slightly different personalities with, with different skill set. Um, but you know, I, but some of the core principles that he had of integrity and trust and, you know, and, and things like that, I certainly try to emulate, um, have always tried to emulate, you know, to make he and my mother proud and, um, and, you know, and, and uh, withhold, you know, the game uh, at the high, highest level that he certainly did throughout his career and, and life. How special is that that you brought up? The first thing about dad is how good of a father he was. It's so easy for us as leaders and business and coaching and the sports world. <laughs> and you get to that top level and we go all in. But most of us need to remember that, you know, the number one leadership opportunity many of us are going to have in our lives is actually as a parent and for you to be able to with all the success that your dad had in business for you to be able to lead with that he was a great father just says so much about him and i could only imagine that's something that that you've tried to learn from as well yeah well i think any of us um who have lost a parent um you know uh go through the experience of 
what people think about them after they're gone and, and what stories they share and, you know, what their obituary says and their, you know, their legacy is that's left behind. And I don't think I realized until I went through that painful experience, as probably most people do, that it really, it's not all about what you did in life and what you accomplished. It's really more about the people you touched and how they remember you. And um, so I, I, that's, you know, and not just when my dad passed nine years ago, but in some of the losses of some of his, you know, friends and colleagues that I was close to as well, several of them this year, sadly, um, uh, with D. Rowe and Tom Jernstead and John Thompson and others who who passed this year. Um, you know, it's it's kind of how, how they make you feel and what they do for you and for the game or for others more so than, you know, the honors, you know, that, that are, uh, they're, they're nice to receive, but at the end of the day, it's, it's really not what life and a career is about. It's really about those other things. So how do you hope to be remembered? <laughs> uh, I, I hope uh, that uh, someone who helped others um, in, in their careers and lives, um, someone who loved the game and everyone associated with it and cared about everyone associated with it, from student athletes to coaches to referees and administrators and broadcast partners and media, um, that, uh, that I was someone that could be trusted. And, um, and, you know, my integrity was, was, uh, gold and, um, but mostly I hope to, you know, be remembered for great relationships and meaningful friendships, um, that, uh, that I treasure now and, and always will. Oh, Dan, you're such a big part of college basketball and college basketball is such a big part of the society. March Madness, we missed it last year, not just from the basketball standpoint, the competitiveness, but just we missed it because it brings us together. But Coaches versus Cancer has been an amazing partnership for almost 30 years with the National Association of Basketball Coaches and the American Cancer Society. And I know you're involved with the NABC. Why is Coaches versus Cancer so important to college basketball? Well, I think it, I think it, it kind of relates to what we were just talking about. It's it's the you know, coaches versus cancer is much bigger than a game we all love um, and have made, as you know, our careers uh, around, um, you know, unfortunately, far too many people in our business and in the world are impacted by cancer. And so having coaches behind uh, the fundraising effort, the education initiatives, um, and, and just the, you know, the advocacy and, uh, and attention on a regular annual basis uh, to this fight um, to find cure and, and treatment and to mitigate the long-term risk of cancer is, is really admirable. And, and for there's so many people that love the game of college basketball, um, it means that, that coaches can impact the, the fight against this disease uh, in big ways and small in every community in our country because we have college basketball being played in every state, in every region of our country. And so it really has been a, an incredible um, relationship for, like you said, you know, a quarter of a century. It's pretty, pretty impactful. How has cancer impacted you? Well, I'm a cancer survivor myself. I, I uh, had a melanoma um, many years ago when I was working at the Big East Conference uh, on my back. Um, I was very fortunate that they detected it early and, and took it off and I didn't have any 
um, additional treatment besides the surgery. I've had some uh, more minor kind of uh, skin cancers since then, no other melanomas, thankfully. <clears throat> but my folks did as well. So I've got their genes. Uh, you know, the, I've, I've been blessed with many portions of their genes, maybe not that one. Um, but uh, that's been the biggest impact uh, in, in my life is just that personal experience. And again, very, very fortunate because it really didn't have a major long-term um, impact on my life, at, at least not to this point. But it's a real wake-up call when you get that call from a doctor saying, I'm sorry to tell you, but you have a melanoma. And you know how deadly that can be um, if not detected early. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's certainly, um, you know, impacted my thinking and, and, and how I, you know, try to help others, uh, in, in this fight. Well, you had the early detection and then access to treatment. And when you really look at the starting point of how to fight cancer, it starts with that. And one of the things that coaches versus cancer is really focusing on right now is health equity and understanding that there's a lot of communities out there, the black and brown communities, which obviously a majority of players who are playing college basketball are a part of who maybe don't have that access or have that immediate detection. Um, and just as simple as you talked about your story, it's educating those, it's opening those up who may not be aware of the power of early detection that is so critical. And that right now, health equity is becoming such a big focus for not only the American Cancer Society, but obviously coaches versus cancer. Uh, that's an excellent point. And, and I appreciate you bringing it up. It makes me, it'll make me think even more about it in the, in the days that follow our talk here, because um, even relating back to my experience, the, the melanoma was in the middle of my back. So there's no possible way that I could have seen it myself and the only reason that that I got it checked out is because in a in an annual physical, my doctor saw it and um, and said, you know, this looks kind of weird. I think you should maybe have uh, a dermatologist take a look at this. Well, going back to your point, if I didn't have access to that annual checkup, that could have gone unchecked for years. In which case, I would have been in a tough situation, you know, had it not been detected so early. So, you're right. My 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 access to healthcare. Um, you know, really probably helped to maybe save my life. And, and so making sure that others have that access um, and, and can have that early detection, whether it be skin cancer or, you know, colon cancer and screening or, or, you know, prostate cancer, whatever it may be, we all know that early detection is a huge part of long-term success against cancer. Where we're from should not dictate if we're going to survive cancer. And that's something that coaches versus cancer is fighting against and fighting hard against right now. Dan, it's been a fascinating talk. Um, thank you for what you do for college basketball. Thank you for what you do for Coaches versus Cancer and for sharing your story of your fight with cancer. And we love to get to know different leaders, different teammates on this podcast. And right now we're going to dive into overtime. We just have five simple questions so we learn a little bit more about you. Are you ready? Sure. Go for it. Question number one. What was your first Final Four? My first Final Four was in 1979 in Salt Lake City at the Huntsman Center on the University of Utah campus. And of course, people will probably remember 1979 was Indiana State versus Michigan State in a championship game, Larry Bird versus Magic Johnson. So I was very fortunate. It was pretty historic Final Four to be my first. As soon as you said Salt Lake City, I'm sure a lot of our listeners put that year together. And wow, what a great memory for you. Second question. 
favorite athlete growing up? Well, on the same theme, it's probably, probably Larry Bird. Um, you know, I, I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island. And so I was a Boston Celtics fan. And, um, you know, as a teenager, when Larry, you know, went to the Celtics and the, the career he had there, uh, it probably was Larry. Although it was Michael Jordan as well, uh, soon to follow Larry. How special is that? You saw Larry Bird in the final four and be able to follow him throughout his career. Third question. Tell us three of your favorite movies. Hoosiers, uh, I think for obvious reasons. Um, uh, maybe A Few Good Men. Um, just kind of a classic uh, movie, incredible cast. And then uh, something lighter, Animal House. All right. Nice balance. And Dan, when it comes to the tournament, we need you on that wall. We want you on that wall. <laughs> Final question. What's the best leadership advice you've ever received? The best leadership advice I've ever received. Um, I think we kind of covered it a little bit earlier and that, you know, that is, you know, to, to, to stay focused on, on the, on the job you have and, and, and to lead, you know, with, with all your heart and your, and your head and, um, and, and, and treat others the way you want to be treated. So I, I believe and, and hope I'm an empathetic leader um, that listens well and, and has the the uh, the best wishes and and for my staff. Um, I, I think it's those things. I think if you really um, lead with other people's um, hopes and dreams and future in your mind um, and help them to develop and reach those then the effort that they uh, return, give in return is, is their best effort and, and then thus makes your team as the most effective it can be. Dan, thanks for being with us today. We know how busy you are. We need to get you back to focusing on not just the tournament, but all the tournaments. But thank you for sharing with us today some of your thoughts and, and thank you for all that you do for Coaches Versus Cancer, the fight against cancer, and for sharing with us your story in your fight against cancer. DJ, my pleasure. It's great being with you. Appreciate what you do for the game and for the fight against cancer and uh, look forward to visiting with you again sometime soon. For all of our listeners, thank you for being a part of Team Coaches Versus Cancer. Remember, life is a team sport and we're rooting for you. Be great.